Welcome. This is Coppercast, a brand new show dedicated to exploring the wonderful, if somewhat technical world of institutional investment in crypto assets. I'm your host, Tyler Kenyon. Our guest today is Jeff White. Jeff is an author and investigative journalist. He earned his stripes as a trainee reporter, working his way up through regional newspapers, often having to cover the mad excitement of local council meetings. But he then moved to Channel 4 as a television news producer, working specifically with their technology correspondent. In 2013, they got their big break covering a story about eBay scams, and later with a piece about the early pitfalls of contactless payment cards. After 10 years with Channel 4, he went freelance, working the information security scene for all the top newspapers and television programs in the UK. He's traveled the world to uncover where cyber crimes are committed from, and importantly, by whom. His new book, Crime.com, is out on August 10th. Jeff, in your show and tell segment, which if you haven't seen yet, please go to our YouTube channel or find it on our website, you talk about the huge amount of money that is paid every year, in fact, every month, to hackers in the form of ransomware. When you look at the chart, it looks fairly alarming as it appears to be trending upwards, but maybe not recently. So what's going on there? It, it really varies, yes. Yeah. So the chart that I showed shows a downward trend during the, the, the sort of March period this year, the sort of lockdown period. But to be honest... The chart I showed goes all over the place for a couple of reasons. Ransomware gangs are always coming and going, and, and certain strains of ransomware get successful at certain times. But the other thing is the ransoms are still, in the vast majority of cases, charged in Bitcoin. And because Bitcoin's value goes all over the place, the chart I showed is US dollar values. If you showed it in Bitcoin, it might be a bit less wibbly-wobbly, but because it's dollar values, it's massively dependent on what happens with the Bitcoin to dollar exchange rate, which swings all over the place. But it is true to say ransomware is still a massive cash cow for, for cybercrime. So due to the volatility then of, of the price of Bitcoin, is that uh, an incentivizing factor for ransomware attackers? Do you think you could track, say, every time Bitcoin goes over $10,000 or $5,000, whatever it is, there's a, you know, a marked increase in attacks? Um, I don't think it's that easy because... Um, Getting, getting, getting visibility of ransomware gangs for a start is quite hard because it's not like there's a sort of union or like lobby group or industry representation group for ransomware gangs. So, so working out what they're doing, um, uh, and I don't, I get the feeling the ransomware gangs themselves aren't equipped enough to kind of go, okay, there's a Bitcoin price spike, let's get our ransomware out of that. They seem to work to their own agenda rather than necessarily the Bitcoin exchange rate agenda. And the other thing, of course, is there'll be a certain level of banking of Bitcoin and waiting for the right time to make the exchange uh, happen. So, you know, even if you did your ransomware campaign at a time when the Bitcoin exchange rate was low, you could just bank that and wait for a boom and so on. Uh, so it's, it's, it's kind of hard to tie the ransomware campaigns together, I think, with the, with the Bitcoin spikes. And do you think with, um, with the coronavirus in particular, are they, are they targeting different people? Um, again, it's hard to say. Uh, th- there has been, there's been an increase, obviously, massively in coronavirus spam. Uh, and my, my worry is, and this is, this is anecdotal, this is the best I can get it, which is anecdotal, is a lot of the misinformation type spam that I'm getting is coming from older friends and family. Probably not a surprise, but basically, you know, older people are struggling to kind of, they're, they're vulnerable to this disease anyway, and they're struggling to get information and, and, and so on. And so I, I suspect that if you, you know, when when all said and done, and when it all shakes out at the end, if we go back and work out who fell victim to cybercrime during coronavirus, I suspect it would skew older. Sadly, I think cybercrime often skews older anyway, particularly those kind of scammy, spammy, you know, click here to enter your credit card to get a free test from the NHS. I suspect that's going to skew older. And do you get a sense of who's doing something about this at the moment? 
Um, if anyone, <laughs> if tell, anyone. Me some, tell me there's someone. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, you know, one of the interesting things about the intelligence and security committee report uh, on Russia that came out fairly recently was the sort of, you know, they really hit the nail on the head. There is an alphabet soup of agencies who are out there sort of policing cybercrime. And, and you've got to realise that ISC report was just looking at the intelligence agencies. So in the UK, MI5, MI6, SIS and GCHQ. Um that's not taking into account all the police agencies. So there's there's obviously the National Crime Agency, there's City of London Police, there's the Metropolitan Police, there's all the local and regional sort of organised crime groups. So there's a whole multitude of people. To answer your question, there's loads of people doing stuff. The question is, are they treading on each other's toes? Who's dictating and coordinating it all? That's That's the tricky thing. And I guess one of the other key challenges for them as well is even if you can identify who you know, the originated the attack, how do you A, catch them and how do you hmm. B, prosecute them, especially yeah. if they're international? Yeah, yeah. It, it's a really tricky one. That, and there's two levels here. So there's the police stuff. On a police level, um, I, I think it's still the case that, that uh, police forces, if they make an arrest in their area, then it counts. But that's a huge disincentive for cybercrime because the people committing the cybercrime are, you know, God knows where, Sri Lanka, Singapore, who knows where. So even if as an investigating officer in the UK, as a police officer, you manage to get a conviction, the conviction is going to be made by a police officer over in some other country. So it doesn't sort of show up on your numbers. So I think that's a bit of a problem with that. Um, the, the, the intelligence agency stuff of, you know, tracking these people down and sort of putting them behind bars and stuff. If you're talking about nation state hackers, it's virtually impossible because these guys are never going to leave the state that, you know, that they're in. Um, although there have been exceptions to that. Some of the Russian hackers or alleged Russian hackers uh, were caught um, uh, in The Hague, uh, famously, and they managed to get photographs of them. But even those guys were travelling on diplomatic passports. So even when they had them, what they felt was bang to rights uh, in the Netherlands, they went, well, dis- diplomatic passports. It's like, OK, all we can do is send you home. So even when you get somebody, a nation-state hacker, in front of you, you're not necessarily going to clap handcuffs on him and... Uh, and there you go. Do, do you get a sense of um, what the the ratio is amongst you know ransomware gangs or I guess hackers in general of you know state backed or sponsored versus people who are just opportunistic and looking for money? Oh God, it's a it's a really it's a really interesting question. It's a really good question, and it's it's quite difficult to answer for a couple of reasons. Um, again, one of the things that the Intelligence and Security Committee report highlighted, which is really interesting and really good that they highlighted it, is the coming together of nation state and cybercrime gangs. So it used there used to be a bit more clear blue water. It's like, okay, here's the government hackers over here and here's the kind of, you know, hacking, you know, industries of organized crime type stuff over here. Increasingly the governments are using the tools of the organized crime hackers which complicates things. But in, also there's instances of governments actually working directly with organised cybercrime. There's an amazing story. I, I didn't get it in the book and I'm really regretful that I didn't. The, the hacking of Yahoo. Yahoo got hacked a while ago. It's a good few years back. But it turned out there's a KGB officer who's working hand in glove with a, a very gifted young hacker who'd worked out a vulner- massive vulnerability at the heart of Yahoo and was merrily exploiting it. And so the government like, great, you know, the Russian government, according to the FBI indictment anyway, the Russian government like, yay, you know, we can work with this guy. So you've had this sort of fusing and coming together. Um, I suspect, you know, if you roughly ran the numbers, you'd have the classic 80-20 thing where like 80% of cybercrime is just, you know, organised cybercrime gangs sending out spam, sending out ransomware, hoping for a hit and so on. And 20% of it is maybe is government stuff the problem is those 20 percent who are doing it, it's a smaller percentage but they're much better at it <laughs> their yeah. chances of getting in once they set their sights on you are much higher so, so one of the things i think we maybe brief, 
touched on this um, before we started recording was uh, when, when you look at that, the chart you, you showed with the, the dip during the lockdown. And if, if we think 80%, roughly whatever it is, is, you know, organized crime, and this is like a, a day job for them, right? Is, is it a nine to five and they're rocking up in an office somewhere? So the pandemic then, are, are their offices getting shut down like ours? And they're like <laughs> yeah. having to work from home and they're <laughs> dealing with shitty Wi-Fi. Or like. Well, this is this is one of the explanations. I've, I've spoken to various people about this sort of, you know, the, the, the picture of cybercrime during coronavirus. And it is one of the explanations for why there hasn't been a sort of massive boom in organised, money-motivated type cybercrime during coronavirus is... You know, a lot of cybercrime, obviously there's all the digital element, there's sending out the spam, there's getting the infections, there's getting the ransomware, all that digital type stuff. But at the other end of the spectrum, there's a heavy end of cybercrime, which is you need people to withdraw cash from ATMs. You need people to stuff it into suitcases and potentially up their bums, I don't know what happens these days, <laughs> and get it across borders, you know, and, and move it around. And all of that stuff of recruiting mules, running mule gangs and getting those mule gangs across borders and your money across borders, that's all shut down. So one of the explanations potentially for why cybercrime hasn't boomed during coronavirus is it's an industry that, like every industry, has suffered. They're not able to fly. They're not able to recruit. They're not able to move and open bank accounts. They're, they're shut down in the same way we've all been sort of shut down. Oh, my heart bleeds for them. <laughs> um, so bringing it back a little bit, um, I was wondering when, when you first came across Bitcoin, uh, mm. either as an interest professionally or personally, what, what made you go, oh, this mm. is interesting? Uh, I can tell you exactly when I came across it, which is probably when a lot of people came across it, which was um, Silk Road, the dark web drug site. Um, dark web sales site, I should say, that specialised massively in drugs. Um, so uh, there was a Gawker piece um, about Silk Road, which I think, God, was that 2008? Could it have been that long ago? That's very early days. Yeah. I forget. There was a very famous Gawker piece anyway about Silk Road and somebody sent it to me and I said, oh, we should do something on this Silk Road thing. So we, you know, I downloaded the tour software. I went on, I found Silk Road um, and we did a piece. And, and of course, the heart of it was Bitcoin, which was the currency that was being used. So, OK, what's Bitcoin? Started finding out about Bitcoin. And we had, I remember very clearly, we, we got a guy in to talk about Bitcoin to explain this, a guy called Amir Taki. Um, who's had a really interesting career. He, he then went on to become um, a fighter in the Middle East uh, uh, and sort of joined up with that gang and then came back. Really interesting guy, but at the time he was massively into Bitcoin and was you know one of the few people I could get into the studio to talk about Bitcoin. So we sit him down in front of a camera and we chat to him and, and the reporter I was working with um, knew less about Bitcoin than I did, to be honest. So we were asking him about this. And it got to the point where we were almost sort of yelling at the guy, well, who's, which bank are you with? What bank account have you got? He said, we don't have one. Well, how can you not have a bank account? Well, it's Bitcoin. It's just, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's out there. It's open source. How can it be open source? You, it, was, it, was, <laughs> it was like trying to explain an iPhone to a chimp. You know, we, we, me and the reporter sat there just not getting it. The steep learning curve. And when he left, when he left the studio, I, I shit you not, I just thought, well, that's never going to last, is it? <laughs> Honestly. And at that point, it was less than a dollar to each Bitcoin. Had I invested a thousand pounds, had I, had I, I don't have many regrets in my life. <laughs> Although actually thinking about it, I, I go back and forth on this. On the one hand, I would have loved to have cleaned up on Bitcoin and be a millionaire now, wouldn't everybody? But... If I was a massive Bitcoin investor, I get the feeling it'd be harder for me to cover it as a journalist because people would say, well, of course you're saying this about Bitcoin because you want it to go up. At least I can, I've got clean hands on this. I'm like, look, I've got no Bitcoin. When I put out a piece about Bitcoin, I don't have an agenda about it. So, But it sounds like you're enthusiastic about it or the prospect of Bitcoin for, I mean, various reasons, I'm sure. Are there 
any that jump out, why why you want to see it succeed? It's it, Bitcoin's a, um, a remarkably resilient experiment. And, and I've read the obituary of Bitcoin many times yeah. over. <laughs> Reports of its death have been greatly exaggerated many times. And, and what's amazing about Bitcoin is it appeals to both the left and the right of the political spectrum. So if you're on the left, Bitcoin holds out this idea of a sort of, you know, kicking against authority, you know, proper socialist democratic type of money, you know, truly democratic money. If you're on the right and you're a libertarian, this is fantastic because it says small government, get rid of the treasury and so on. So it appeals to both sort of political sides. It's lasted a long time. And that is a real tribute to, 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 to the code and to the sort of community behind it. Um, and it just, for all of the craziness and for all the disruption and all the crime, it has just opened up a completely new area of existence for us. Do you think it's <laughs> coming to a, a crossroads in its young life or long life, I guess, as the case may be? Um in that it's becoming more professional and institutionalized and in some cases regulated because, you know, mm. you'll get the Bitcoin maximalists who say, you know, get your hands off it, you know, these my private keys, you can't do anything with it. Mm. And then you get other people who say, look, we need some oversight in this community because it can be used for nefarious reasons or, <laughs> yeah. you know, it just makes it easier to facilitate, you know, the transfer of value or whatever yeah. if I can put it in a bank. Yeah. And that's been so that... The, the, the same fault line keeps coming up in Bitcoin again and again and again. It's a fault line that's been in there from the beginning, which is, is Bitcoin um, a sort of radical social transformation kind of technology or is it um, an investment, a get, you know, frankly, a get-rich-quick or get-rich-over-a-period-of-time investment? That's been there from the very beginning. The original guys, I suspect, behind it, and I suspect they were guys, um, uh, felt deeply that, that sort of sense of this is going to overhaul society and you know, we need to fix this problem of government power and so on. Um, very quickly, um, the people who took it forward were very interested in making lots of money off the back of it and, and the growth curve. What's interesting is you couldn't have had the one without the other. If it had just been left to the kind of social, you know, overhaul type folks, it, it might have succeeded, it might not have. It, it really became popular and massively successful thanks to the, you know, the people shouting about how good an investment it was and how much it was climbing. So you needed, it's, it's like you needed both sides. You needed, you know, Bruce Wayne to be Batman and all that kind of thing. You need those two sides. But that fault line has stayed with it throughout the whole period. And so now, you know, this, this, this point we've reached where it's like, is Bitcoin an investment or a currency? <clears throat> and if it's a currency, how can it be a currency if it swings so wildly? How do you get ballast into that system? That conversation is just another reflection of the fault line that's run through it. Is it a commodity? Is it a currency? And, and we're still sort of dealing with that whole thing. And again, that comes down as well to how you regulate it. Talk about regulation. Yeah, yeah, you need to regulate it. But am I regulating a currency here or a commodity? And so whenever regulators have looked at it, they've got caught in this loop of what is it, what is it, what is it? And then the conversation's moved on. Do you have a, a preference for, you know, which way that story goes, which road it takes? That's a really good question. It's never one I've sort of thought about before. But <clears throat> for me, you know, the, um, I'd like to see it become a currency. I think if it's got a future, I think because the commodity thing is, if you're getting Bitcoin just to sit on it and then sell it like you would gold, it sort of, for me, defeats what I what I believe the original creators wanted, which was a genuinely radical, you know, currency that could be used. You know, it's, it's interesting. I've never sort of been asked to put my colours on to nail my colours to the master that. But I think that, you know, intuitively... What's you to it? I mean, you can change your mind. I think, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I guess, Public. yeah, one is the more utilitarian sort of yeah. view and, and the other is uh, a bit more yeah. long-term asset manager kind of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's interesting. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the machinations that have got along all the way, but, you know, with... with 
can we create a sort of Bitcoin investment fund? You know, how do we sort of set that up? And then on the other side, the sort of how do we make this a currency that's got some ballast? Can we somehow even out the peaks and troughs and so on? I know with Ethereum, they're trying to do sort of stuff like that, uh, you know, to, to, to solve that exact same problem. So to switch gears a little bit, uh, Bitcoin um, has also struggled in its lifetime with a, a reputation, uh, as you mentioned. I mean, many people heard about it for the first time on the Silk Road. Uh, and then even... Uh, last week uh, being associated with a, a Twitter hack. Yeah. Um, did you follow that uh, attack very closely? Fairly closely, yeah. It, the, the annoying thing was somebody obviously opened the taps on the tech security story barrel. So you had you had the Twitter hack and then immediately afterwards you had the attribution of to, to Russian government hackers of break-ins to vaccine companies. So I, I covered the Twitter hack for as long as I could before having to jump horses. Fascinating though. But, it, but this is the thing, it... it because of the way Bitcoin's configured and because of the pseudonymity, I don't think it's anonymity, but pseudonymity to the wallet addresses, it just, it's really hard to see how it can ever get away from cybercrime. But one thing that's interesting is there's this, um, every time a wallet gets attached to a personality and every time you can track a wallet to a, to an individual or to an organization or to an entity, um, it's almost like the, the sort of feet of clay, you know, that the, the, the Bitcoin gets pulled down into the real world. So it's like, okay, I now know that this wallet address belongs to that person. So from now on, every transfer I can link to that wallet address, I can link to that person. It's almost like every time Bitcoin puts a foot down in the real world, it gets stuck. And then that wallet address gets stuck. And so I wonder whether increasingly more and more wallet addresses will get stuck to real world entities. And so the anonymity of it will start to diminish. But of course, you can set up new wallet addresses with a click of a mouse. So, yeah. This sort of varies greatly from attacks 20 years ago, for instance, that you covered uh, the love bug mm. attack in 2000, which was <laughs> 10 years, well, almost 10 years before Bitcoin even came along. Mm. I mean, what was their off-ramp then for, <laughs> you know, the proceeds of their crime? Ah, well, the guy who invented love bug never made any money. That's a tragedy of it. Um, <laughs> and got caught almost immediately. <laughs> it was a bizarre story. He'd um, He'd invented this... He'd cobbled together a couple of components, really. So he, he'd cobbled together um, a, uh, a sort of Trojan that would go around that would infect files. And he'd cobbled that together with a password stealer. And then he cobbled that whole thing together with um, a sort of worm spreading mechanism. So basically, when the virus landed on your computer, if you clicked it and got infected, it would scramble all your files, steal your passwords, and then would send itself to everybody in your Outlook address book. Um, which, and I, when I was trying to describe this in the book, I was like, okay, how, how do I describe how this happens? So it's like, okay, if everybody, if every person who got infected sends it to 50 other people and they all click it and they infect 50 other people, in six hops, you've got around the entire world, six billion people. Presumably they all own computers. You know, it, it's astonishing how quickly this thing spread. Um, so the guy who invented it uh, was a Filipino chap and he, he let this thing go. And he realized he made this genius decision at the beginning of it. It's like, okay, if this virus is going to go around the world, I have no control over who's going to click on it, how to convince them to click on it. So how can I, con how can I come up with a virus that everybody's going to want to click on? And he, I don't think he thought massively consciously about this, but he, he just thought, well, what does everybody in the world want? What, what's a common thing people want? Love. They want love, don't they? Everybody wants a love letter from someone. Sure. So that's what he did. He hid the virus in a love letter attached to the email. So you would get the love letter, you'd open the love letter, and boom, you were infected. And it did 45 million computers in something like 24 hours. It was astonishing. It's scary. Yeah. Do you think nowadays, um, you know, 20 years later, we collectively generally are more aware of these dangers and are less likely to 
um, fall foul of them? Or are we still... Yeah, I'd love to say the answer <laughs> that is yes. <laughs> I'd love to say. But, you know, again, one of the depressing things about writing the book is, you know, time and time, chapter after chapter, I'm covering these huge hacks and the way in is a phishing email. Democratic National Committee in the US, phishing email. Bangladesh Bank, $81 million stolen, phishing email. Sony Pictures Entertainment, phishing email. Just time and time again, um, you, you know, Ukrainian power outages in 2015, 2016, phishing email. Again, break-ins to the UK power industry, including some people connected to the nuclear industry, phishing emails. So we know the problems, yeah. phishing emails. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But this is the thing. <laughs> why, you know, why is it still a problem? <laughs> uh, God, because it's just, it's the, it's the crack we can't get off, basically. The, the problem is, you know, we've devolved power to a lot of people. So everybody has an email address and, yeah. and, you know, these email addresses are public and that's great. The problem is, to, you know, to quote Spider-Man, you know, with great power, responsibility goes great power, you know. You've empowered people to receive emails and send emails, but then the responsibility on them is not to fuck that up <laughs> and click on the wrong ones. And, you know... Easier said than done. I know, but everybody had that thing of sitting in the office and just being rushed, you know, and, and, and not thinking and, uh, and clicking on something. Are, more, are people more likely to click on something in a work-related email versus a personal email, do you think? Like, I've, I've no idea. I've, no. It's a really good question, and I've no idea, actually. And... Are, are there more resources dedicated towards sniffing out, you know, phishing emails on the corporate side of things versus like the personal side of things? I'd like to think Google wants me to stay a Google mm. customer mm. so they will invest a lot of time and money in keeping it, my Gmail address safe. Exactly, yeah. It's got loads better. I mean, you know, I remember email back in the day, you know, I had a Hotmail account and stuff and it was just, there were just waves of spam, you know, yeah. you'd have to wade through to find the emails that weren't spam, you know. So it's got loads and loads better. Um, it's just that there's this constant sort of pace of it. You know, it's, it's, it's an almost sort of depressingly constant pace of it. And and there must be people out there who fall for it um, because otherwise they wouldn't bother keeping going. I think on the corporate side, the danger obviously is phishing emails, which is, you know, not spam email, but just targeted. And some of the, some of the psychology and technology behind that is absolutely amazing. There's a guy I work with, um, a guy called Glenn Wilkinson, who's an ethical hacker who runs a lot of phishing stuff. And he and I have done sort of presentations together and that kind of thing. And one of the brilliant things he does, he sends out phishing emails, but he shows you how he crafts them. And one of the things is he'll send out an email that's like, this is next year's redundancy plans. And it's it's copied into the to the key people in the company, the board members. And then it looks like it's been mistakenly copied into you as a, as a normal employee. So when you get it, you're like, oh my God, redundancy plans. I'm not supposed to see this. So you click it to open it and you get infected. But of course, you're not going to report that to IC support, are you? Because you shouldn't have been in on the email. So you don't that's want to tell people. Devious. I know. And that's just the thing. That's successful. Exactly. And that's what the love bug virus, the 20 years old love bug virus shows you that to be a good hacker is about people. It, it, there's all the code in the world. There's all the viruses, all that stuff. But if you don't understand people and how to just trick them into taking that one stupid mistake, you know, that, that's your way in. So do you have advice then for people? Like what are the best ways to, you know, spot a phishing attack or the best ways to, you know, keep keep yourself safe on a daily basis? Mm. You know, what, what are the sort of like the top recommendations? Like corporate in terms of enterprises, there is a big debate about whether, I know some techies like, look, employees shouldn't have to deal with this stuff. We should be good at security enough to protect them from these, these emails. Frankly, there's always going to be an email that gets through. So I think, you know, employee education is absolutely key. And telling those stories of, here was an instance, like in Bangladesh Bank, it was one poor employee at Bangladesh Bank who was on a busy day, clicked on the email, and boom, it's $81 million. You know, employees need to understand that. But, but, and here's the flip side, 
they also need to understand that it's okay to make a mistake and please tell somebody if you do, you know, we can't protect you from everything, but as soon as you spot anything dodgy, if you think you've done something dodgy, please tell us. Because Bangladesh Bank, the employee clicked on the email, but it took a year to take the $81 million out. So the bank had a year to, to, to track that down. Had the employee the next day come in and thought, do you know what? I think I fucked that up. <laughs> then they still could have saved the day. It wasn't like an instance of a hack. But, you know, in terms of personal stuff, um, uh, it's interesting. My mum is my sort of test case with this. Every now and again, I send my mum phishing emails, see whether she can spot them. And I say, OK, here's, here's a phishing email. Tell me three things about this that are dodgy. And it is the classic, the mouse over thing is just the, the best thing in the world. You can put the mouse over. It says, click here to access the report or click here to, you know, get your parcel delivered or whatever. And you move your mouse over the link. And it's not a FedEx link, it's some dodgy website. It's the key thing that everybody can do is just use your mouse and look at the link. Where are you being taken? And if it's not the FedEx site or the HMRC site, don't click on it. And also, I think slowing down and just, you know, just realising that the inbox is basically a door to the street and everybody can knock on it. You know, there's this this expectation that we respond to email instantly and click on email instantly. We need to kind of de-nurture people from that argument and say, look, you know, take your time. And do you get the sense that things are getting better? Like, give me some hope here that mm. it's not down to me to protect myself <laughs> from phishing attacks. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, well, yeah, yeah, it's getting better. Outstanding, um, good. Let's call it the day. <laughs> I don't know. Look, you've got, to, you've got to track. There's a line of our dependence on computers and how much, you know, computers control our lives and how much, how much we use them every day. I hate these figures on how much screen time kids have. They have all this screen time and how much time we all spend on our phones. Your phones now are your alarm clock, your clock, your newspaper, your post box, you know, your... Everything in between. Exactly, your television. So, yeah, we spend loads more time on screens, but screens are doing more and more stuff that we would have done. So, you know, we are increasingly reliant on machines. So, in a way, more cybercrime is inevitable because we're going to get more and more reliant on computers. Um, but look, still, you know, life goes on. We still, we still get there. Every now and again, somebody loses $81 million, but, you know. They're insured. It's fine. <laughs> I'm not sure whether they were. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, this has been really fascinating. I, I appreciate your time coming in to talk to us about this stuff this afternoon. Pleasure. I've got a few more questions. They're just the kind of questions we ask everybody. Uh, where do you see the crypto industry, Bitcoin or, you know, writ large, in one year and 10 years? Um, oh, that's really interesting. Um, honestly, in one year, I don't see a huge amount of change. Um, the, the heat. I mean, there was a, there's a period of time when regulators started getting really interested in Bitcoin, but particularly about blockchain as well. And I know Mark Carney at the Bank of England in the UK spoke um, about that and about regulatory possibilities. Um, there's all sorts of machinations. I know there's things going on in Iran. There's things going on in China. There's all these that you know, different countries working on their own sort of version of cryptocurrencies. That all seems very putative at the moment. And so I don't think we're on the brink of a sort of big you know, one year, you know, from now, everything will be changed. And also the whole Bitcoin forking and all that kind of thing. There's, there doesn't seem to be anything on the cards. But in 10 years time, it's going to be really interesting whether we've cracked this, is it a commodity, is it a currency picture, the extent to which it's regulated. And also, and I'm not an expert on this, but but listening to people who are, I think this is really interesting. The idea of cryptocurrency war, of, of the idea of balkanization of currency in a way we haven't seen before, where countries get their own versions of cryptocurrencies. But again, you could see that as kind of a fractured picture. On the other hand, you could just see it as a different way of, of exchanges. There could just be a whole new type of, of currency exchange that goes on on a, on a crypto level. So I think 
regulatory in 10 years' time is going to be really interesting. I suspect we're going to see more regulation. But on the flip side, I think currencies in 10 years' time are going to... Sorry, countries in 10 years' time are going to start having their own cryptocurrencies. Very good. Um, if you could change one thing about this industry, what would it be? About which industry? Let's go with crypto. Crypto. Um, and then we'll talk InfoSec after that. Ah, one thing about the crypto industry. Um... God, comprehensibility. <laughs> so much. It's so difficult to understand all this stuff. Um, yeah, I think I think a bit less wild-eyed bollocks and a bit more straight talking. Fair enough. <laughs> That's what we hope to achieve here. I don't know if we accomplish it. But what about in information security in general? Um, what would be really good would be more positive stuff around uh, around um, info security and education of people. So less hammering people for opening the wrong email or not understanding this and more holding people's hands to go through it and rewarding them for when they get it right. Okay. What is one piece of technology you could not live without? <laughs> oh, it doesn't have to be your phone, but if it is, fair enough. No, no, it's worse than that. It's my bread maker. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. I've got this little tiny, it makes like a little half loaf kind of thing. I like bread. Bread is our fucking national food, right? We make, how many sandwiches do we eat? And they are full of fat and sugar and and salt, and you don't need it. And when you make your own bread, you realise how little fat and salt and sugar you need in bread. And honestly, if the, if the house was burning, that is the thing I would carry out. Is this the last thing you do before you go to bed? You flip on the, yeah, the bread maker? Yeah, time overnight, you wake up to the smell of fresh bread. What that, would be better than that? That does sound pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> So aside from bread making, what does your weekend look like? What do you do when you've got time off? <laughs> well, normally, I, you know, obviously when we're not in lockdown, I go climbing. That's my big thing. I go cool. climbing. Uh, what movie could you watch over and over again and never get tired of? Uh, it's a toss-up between Fear and Loathing. Well, no, as soon as I name them, I've come up with more. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas um, or 2001, depending on how hungover I am. Okay, a couple <laughs> classics. Um, do you have any catchphrases you live by? Um... The one I seem to come out with, and I catch myself doing it, and I hate it, is, we'll see. Whenever I'm worried about something, I'll end the sentence by going, we'll see. Knowing full well that we will, and it might not be good. <laughs> um, who should we all follow on Twitter? Uh, um, uh, you can throw a shameless self-plug in here. You can then. follow me on Twitter, Jeff White, uh, 247 um, There's a, an account called, um, I think it's I Am Developer. So it's not I am developer, I am developer, I think is the account name. And it's just loads of in-jokes about being a developer. And it's actually really funny. <laughs> okay. Uh, what was the last thing that surprised you? Uh, what was the last thing that surprised me? The last thing that surprised me was opening the door to what I thought was another Amazon delivery for my wife and being confronted with six copies of my own book. That's a nice, nice surprise. It was a lovely surprise, yeah. I'm glad I opened the door because I was not going to do so. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, Jeff, thanks again for your time. It's been a pleasure talking with you. My pleasure. Cool. To our listeners, if you haven't already seen Jeff's show and tell video, please go to our YouTube page or you can find it on Twitter at CopperHQ or find it on the website, copper.co forward slash insights. There you can also sign up for our newsletter, which goes out every Monday morning and includes links to all the week's top stories, as well as any updates from the wider team at Copper. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please make sure to give us a good review in whichever streaming platform you're using. And of course, subscribe. And don't forget to jump on Amazon so you can pre-order Jeff's new book, Crime.com, which will be widely available on the 10th of August. If you want to get in touch with me, you can always reach me, Tyler, on Twitter at CryptoTSK, or you can email me directly at tyler.kenyon at copper.co. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, or if you know someone who should be, give us a shout. We're here to talk all things institutional crypto. 
The show is made possible because of the technical and creative wizardry of Ben Silvertown, with support from Maylee Mountford and Eva Leela. New episodes will be coming out fortnightly, and in the meantime, stay safe.